2: Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero Show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network, and podcast at bzd.org and 3cr.org.au. Sorry on both those. And don't forget you can follow us with the tag at bzdtechshow on Twitter. My name's Michael Steindl. And I'm joined today by my two co-hosts, Natalie Bucknell.
3: Hello, Michael.
2: And Laura. Perry, Hi, Michael. Her second last day before she leaves us to do some more studies. This week we're talking to a solar veteran, Nigel Morris. Nigel joined Solar Analytics last year in the newly created role of Business Development Director to assist with the release of a range of new features coming onto the market in 2017. Nigel previously ran his own businesses, both as an installation company and a consultant, but more importantly to us, he's a prolific and very well-reputed author in the renewable energy sector. So we've got a packed show today trying to cover both uh, a bit about uh, Nigel's solar analytics, but more importantly, the federal minister's, Kelly's comments about EVs and Nigel's own experience with EVs and some other stuff. Welcome, Nigel. Thanks for joining us. Oh,
0: You're most welcome. Good day to- listen.
2: Nigel, you've been in this industry a long time and served a number of different roles. As a solar veteran, tell us what's happening in the solar world with regard to energy reliability as we hear and read so many stories about how unreliable solar is.
0: Gosh, uh, starting with the tricky questions. I, I, I think in a nutshell what we're seeing right now is you know transformation in action. We're seeing the evolution of the energy industry in Australia, you know, happening all around us, um, there's great things going on, uh, there's huge challenges going on, and as I joked to a colleague talking about the old days in solar the other day, going back only um, 10 or 12 years ago, um, the electricity industry didn't care what happened with solar, and we're happy to see feed into tax because they never thought it was going to happen. Well, guess mm. what?
2: So what about um, energy pricing last year and this year? What's happening there?
0: So I guess energy pricing is a really interesting one because it's caught up in a whole manner of things that are going on. Again, some of them designed to try and evolve the industry and the COAG's Power of Choice program that's been rolling out for some years now is designed to provide transparency and protection for consumers. In the meantime, of course, we've got the normal sh- shenanigans going on of of you know uh, market manipulation, uh, profiteering which is all perfectly above board and, and, and uh, you know generators and retailers are able to do that out there. So you know, the market's doing its thing in the meantime we've got in some cases skyrocketing spikes because of surging demand and on the other hand we've got you know negative pricing because of massively increasing proportions of renewables. So you know, um, a dog's breakfast, really, is, is is the way you could describe the energy market and pricing. It's, it's Of course, pricing has flattened out a little bit. We saw it flatten for a little while, mostly because of political pressure, not because anything had really changed. But 2017, it went up dramatically, and those, those impacts are really just starting to be felt now. And, of course, the regulatory and policy environment is, is trying to keep a handle on all of those types of things.
3: So, Nigel, another key factor in the development of renewables has been the uptake of lithium batteries. What are your observations about that?
0: Yeah, the battery storage space is a really fascinating one. You know, in summary, you know, you go back a couple of years and we estimate that in 2015 there were perhaps 500 storage batteries uh, connected to the grid on solar systems. In 2016, you know, another 6,000 or so. And in 2017, we think probably in excess of about 10,000. So it hasn't actually grown as fast as everyone initially thought, and there are a lot of stories behind that. However, we think this year is probably going to be the year when we'll take a pretty big leap. I wouldn't be surprised at all if we saw 25,000-plus systems go in this year. So we're kind of back where solar was, eight years or so ago when it went from virtually non-existent market to suddenly being prolific and very, very common.
1: So, Nigel, before we move on to a conversation about electric vehicles, could you just give us, Alison, uh, a bit of a uh, overview of what Solar Analytics does and their products?
0: Sure. So, we're an Australian-owned uh, and based software company. We use Australian-based hardware to monitor and increasingly to control loads and solar in people's homes. So our expertise really is, is in developing intelligent algorithms, using machine learning to take the guesswork out of what's going on in solar systems. And as I say, you know, this year we'll actually be launching a bunch of the next generation products. In fact, I installed the prototype on, in my home last night. As one example, the first one that I've got my hands on that allows us to remotely control inverters, inverter-connected batteries, and also I have a load control system at home in prototype form, which allows me to control my electric vehicle charger and other, other loads in the home. So, yeah, we're a, we're a monitoring and, and an intelligent control solutions
2: company. Uh, Nigel, Beyond Zero Emissions, as most of our listeners will know, published as one of its reports, the Electric Vehicle Report, showing how Australia could transition to electric vehicles in 10 years. And we did discuss them again in last week's show. But what we didn't cover last week was the, to my mind, absolutely insane, maybe stupid comments made by a federal member, Craig Kelly, about electric vehicles. You published a really sound... Rebuttal of that, and we'd just like to go through point by point the the points he made and, and your answers. Mm. So his first one was the argument that electric vehicles have a high carbon footprint, which was the most insane thing.
0: Yeah, it is insane, and and you know um, you can look at the data and you can cherry pick, which is exactly what uh, Craig Kelly did. He picked a, a best and worst case, and you know took it completely out of context. The simple fact of the matter is, of course, that, you know, A, electric vehicles convert about 90% of the energy that you put into them into motive force, whereas a combustion engine vehicle only converts about 20 or 30%. So, you know, straight off, you're worse off. And of course, the other reality is that our energy intensity uh, from the production of electricity is going down. And most people who own v- EVs um, are very, very interested in in solar as well. Uh, the vast majority, I would argue. So it's it's a no-brainer to therefore conclude that with a more efficient vehicle, using the energy more efficiently and purchasing green power, that they have a lower carbon footprint. And in fact, the green vehicle guide, when you look at it rationally, even says the same thing. Even though Craig Kelly chose to cherry-pick a ridiculous scenario.
2: So how how did he do that, just briefly?
0: He basically chose a very small, low-cost commuter uh, petrol engine car and compared it to a high-performance electric vehicle, which was a Tesla. And... When you extend the range from a very tiny engined petrol car to a very large two and a half ton electric vehicle, there's going to be a difference in the in the performance efficiency of those two vehicles, which is you know an irrational debate.
2: And plus, use out of date emissions intensity figures and so on. Indeed.
3: And and I presume he was assuming fossil fuels for the electricity production, was he?
2: Uh, I have no
0: idea what he was assuming, to be honest. <laughs> and and indeed, the other person who was interviewed, uh, UNSW researcher who debated vigorously the points and had recently done a study, he wasn't even willing to accept the science that was produced by that study. So, you know, he uh,
2: no, was bl- blissfully ignorant. Yeah, I did actually hear him on the radio and he was assuming brown coal production of the electricity to drive yeah. it. Um, whereas go. we know that anyone that bothers to buy an electric vehicle takes great pride in using the, as green a power as they can. Of course.
3: So what about the bigger picture? What about their full life cycle emissions around a vehicle?
0: Uh, yeah, look, that's a really interesting one. And I, I did some research on that when I was preparing my response. And, and in fact, the green vehicle guide that uh, uh, that Kelly referred to as the Bible um, was very, very clear on this. And it basically said, A, that, you know, Analyzing the true life cycle emissions of any vehicle is difficult at best. But secondly, that all the studies that have been done to date in both electric or combustion engine vehicles um, point to the fact that 85 to 90% of the life cycle energy is used in the construction, not in the operation. Um, And that, you know, there's no discernible difference at this stage, uh, no significant difference between electric vehicles or combustion engines uh, that anyone's aware of so I think it's early days on that data but you know Kelly's claims were simply were simply made up and in fact directly in contravention to what the green vehicle
2: guide says and the claim that they aren't really cheap to run that comes back to this um, whether you're using fossil fuel uh, fossil fuel generate electricity I guess doesn't it
0: it does, but even if you are using fossil fuels, electricity, um, and I, in my article I published uh, my own case study of my own scenario, which was in my case an electric motorcycle versus a combustion engine motorcycle. I know uh, in intimate detail all the differences between those two. In my particular case, you know, I would have spent something in the order of about um, $6,500 uh, in fuel costs, over the 45,000 Ks on my petrol bike. Um, and I, if I had purchased my energy at full price, I would have paid $600, 675 to be exact, to, to run my electric vehicle. So in addition, I've got virtually no servicing costs. I've got no oil, no spark plugs, no air filters, no transmission. I've got none of that stuff uh, that requires servicing or, or, or support. So, you know, over the 45,000 Ks since I switched to fully electric, I'm something in the order of eight or $10,000 a head by my own reckoning and every EV owner I speak to says pretty much the same thing. So he's, uh, again, completely ignorant to the reality sadly.
3: Well That sounds really clear cut. Are there difficulties in finding people to maintain and service electric vehicles though, given that they're just on the front edge of the market?
0: Yes, it's nowhere near as mature as, the combustion engine market that's been around for 100 years. There's no doubt about that. And we're using cutting-edge technology, and that means you know we're all early adopters. Um, for those people in the uh, automotive, in, in the car space, it's a, it's better than it is for motorcycles, electric motorcycle owners like myself. Um, so there are some challenges of, of being an early adopter. There's no doubt about that. However, the, uh, in my particular case, the enthusiasm of owners around the world and the connectivity of us all around the world means that getting service and support, ultimately, we've, got to, we've, we've kind of got to be a little bit more ingenious about how we solve problems. But so far, I've had a wonderful uh, experience And in fact, the thing that I like the most about mine is if I do have a problem, and I've had a couple of minor problems, I can jump on my phone, download a data set and send it to the factory from the side of the road and to a dealer and get someone to help me analyse it. Um, and with the later model bikes, they can potentially send back a patch as well. It's a whole so, new world, isn't it? Couldn't do that on my petrol power time. <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> and what about the point that electric vehicles receive unfair subsidies?
0: Yeah. Look, you know, cross-subsidisation happens across the country in so many different areas, water, energy, gas, infrastructure. There's cross-subsidisation across so many different sectors. But in essence, when you look at what subsidies are available for electric vehicles, there are virtually none. Kelly banged on about the fact that Um, If you were buying a Tesla, and he seems to think that the only electric vehicles in the country at the moment are Teslas, which is far from the truth when you look at the statistics, uh, you can get a luxury car tax benefit if you have the ability to buy a relatively expensive Tesla. So that is a subsidy. However, what he fails to mention is that subsidy is also available to luxury car purchasers who buy an internal combustion engine vehicle. So, you know, I don't think that has any relevance at all. Um, There is a couple of very small stamp duty concessions that a couple of states offer. And other than that, there are no subsidies. There are absolutely zero subsidies. Mm -hmm. And I can say that as someone who used to sell electric motorcycles and desperately tried to get rebates and subsidies and support of any type from my customers, and there was nothing available. Conversely, you know, there's plenty of data out there that shows that something in the order of six or seven billion dollars a year is provided through fuel pack subsidies uh, to, you know, fleets of trucks and cars around the country. So EVs get virtually no subsidy. There is a ton of subsidy available for other vehicles. So
1: Kelly's lying. Mm. Good. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. And what about the the claim or the concern, which as a bike rider, I have had this concern before, but I'm still alive, that Mm -hmm. EVs will kill you because they're quiet.
0: Yeah, look, this is a, a very common misconception, and it's a, it's a reasonable thing. I actually kind of agreed with Kelly in one sense on this one, believe it or not, that it's an issue that we do have to get our head around. Uh, we need to be conscious of the fact that consumers have learned to expect to hear a car coming, particularly pedestrians. there have been several studies done. I found one that was a few years old, but it was a pretty good study where they'd done a lot of experimentation and genuine research into this issue and once you get under about 15 k's an hour it's true that consumers or pedestrians particularly which is where the bulk of the risk is that's 99% of the risk is around pedestrians they can walk out and and not look and expect to hear a vehicle coming and so there is an increased risk from vehicles that are extraordinarily quiet now having said that of course internal combustion engine cars and motorcycles are, both, uh, uh, are all getting quieter and quieter and quieter as time goes by. So there is a risk there. I acknowledge that, and there are some things that can be done. But the simple fact of the matter is virtually every EV owner that I've ever met understands this. Mm. So we're just riding or, or driving accordingly, and it's very, very straightforward, and, and it's incumbent. It's a responsibility of EV owners to accept that Uh, If you see a pedestrian on the side of the road, he or she is not going to hear you coming and you need to be extraordinarily aware of that and adjust your driving behaviour. I've done that successfully for 45,000 k's. There are 4,000 other EV drivers out there who do the same thing uh, in, in Australia. You know, his argument was essentially let's keep vehicles really, really noisy in perpetuity to solve the problem. Well, come on, really?
2: Yeah. If you missed the start, we're talking to Nigel Morris from Solar Analytics about a variety of topics Nigel, um, second-hand EV market in Australia, just briefly, is it, uh, is it worth considering or um, do questions of battery life make it too tricky or it's too small a market at the moment?
0: Look, it's certainly a very small market and my um, I know there are occasionally electric vehicles coming up on the second-hand uh, market. I had a look recently myself, actually, and was pleasantly surprised by the number of um, EVs, a small number of battery only, but there are certainly some. Um, And, you know, I think the interesting thing is when you look at electric vehicles, especially the pure electrics, you know, the amount of investment and R&D and conservativeness before companies release those vehicles is profound. So although everyone's naturally concerned about being an early adopter, there's a huge amount of concern that manufacturers have to make sure those vehicles actually do deliver on their promises. And so my experience in in, uh, owning two electric bikes so far has been that the claims of the manufacturers are being exceeded generally. And so the battery life that most uh, vehicles can expect is going to be what was promised. So I, I, it's going to take people a while to get comfortable with that. Um, but personally, I'm extremely comfortable with it now.
3: Nigel, if, if the batteries do, you know, not do the job, what sort of cost is it to replace them? What What's the risk that people are taking on?
0: Yeah, um... Look, in the case of a pure electric vehicle today, I would say, you know, it's the vast majority of the cost. In the case of electric motorcycle, it's something in the order of probably 70% plus of the cost of the vehicle is in the battery. And, you know, it's, I would say, barely practical to, to do that uh, at the current time. However, as every year passes, the cost of those batteries is reducing by... 15 to 20 percent, um, their energy density is getting better and better and better, and more products are becoming available and more associated electronics around them. So it's a challenge at the moment, there's no doubt about it, but I think that it's just going to get easier, and every day that goes by, it gets better. Yeah,
2: and perhaps as the volume gets up, you might get third party solutions for retiring batteries and so on.
0: Indeed, and in fact, uh, you know, one real case of that, um, there's a lot of owners of earlier Zero motorcycles around the world now have suffered challenges on the odd occasion with their battery packs, and they're very successfully repurposing retired Nissan Leaf batteries (laughs) and putting them into their Zero motorcycles. They're readily available, particularly in the US.
2: Uh, I know Um, it does that for mopeds as well.
0: Yeah, exactly. But, so that, you know that, that's emerging
2: already. That's a good segue. Actually, you mentioned the zero because in our show last week we spoke about the introduction of electric vehicles in Australia, but we concentrated on cars, not electric mm. motorbikes and push bikes. Mm. Uh, we know you have a strong interest in electric motorbikes, and I've personally drooled over your zero, um, and you've had that for a long time. You, you covered it before that you'd done a very detailed comparison between your, your former motorcousin and the and the electric zero. Indeed. So, how many electric motorbikes are there in Australia?
0: Really good question, and I actually went digging for some data on this this morning. I found a reasonable data set uh, on electric uh, cars that um, corresponds pretty well with the total fleet being at about four and a half thousand electric cars in cumulative in Australia at the moment. And I added the three. Really, there's two primary electric vehicle brands. Uh, that have been available or are available in Australia. One is the Zero motorcycle, the other is the Fonzarelli scooter. And looking at that, um, my estimate is that the total electric vehicle fleet for motorcycles in Australia, I reckon, is probably somewhere between 500 and 700 bikes, believe it or not. I think Fonzarelli have built quite a decent fleet of machines that have gone out there and are being used by some corporates for delivery vehicles and various other things. Uh, Zero have come and gone in Australia over the years, and Mm. sadly, they're gone again at the moment. I think they'll be back. But there's about 160-odd Zero motorcycles on the road in Australia. So small numbers. But interestingly, when you look at it as a percentage of the fleet, we're about 14% of the total EV fleet in Australia. That's electric bikes and scooters.
2: Which so, is as much a reflection on how sad the numbers are on car vehicles. On, <laughs> um, so Indeed. Why, why aren't there more, Nigel? Why aren't there what, yeah, more Yeah, what are the, what are the inhibitions or, to being more? Motorcycles. Oh, motorcycles. Both, if you like.
0: Sure. So I think motorcycles suffer the same intrinsic uh, challenges for consumer uptake uh, as, as electric cars do. Number one is the, the, the intrinsic fear in Australia. Uh, that we want to be able to jump on our bike and do a 6,000-kilometre road trip. And and I've done a 6,000k road trip on my motor motorgoosie. I wouldn't try it on my zero. However, I have done long road trips uh, of um, almost 1000 k's on my bike now, on my electric bike. Mm. Uh, charging infrastructure is the number one challenge.
2: Once you've got charging
0: infrastructure, these problems go away. And uh, I've already got a fast charger on my bike that allows me to fill it up from empty in under an hour which is a comfortable stop, and then I'm back on the road. So that's the thing that I think this year is going to make a significant um, leap. Um, We're seeing a lot of infrastructure being planned and talked about this year. And so I think once that infrastructure goes in, the fear starts to go away. And then it's simply about the manufacturers feeling comfortable that there's enough infrastructure to support the vehicles, which there hasn't been. And uh, they will then bring in the models. The models are around the world and available all over the place. The problem is, There's no incentives and there's been no infrastructure. Once that problem is resolved, we're off and running.
3: Fantastic. So on that topic, um, Eva Harkinson will be at this weekend's Electric Vehicle Expo in Melbourne. I
0: heard. That's fantastic. (laughs) um, I
2: I heard she was a bit of a hero of yours.
0: (laughs) Oh, 14-time world record holder, uh, electric motorcycle pioneer, great, great admirer of her achievement.
3: So well, yeah. Can can you elaborate a little bit more? What's what what else has been her contribution, or what's her background?
0: She's a Swedish-born uh, person who uh, shares her time between the US and New Zealand, as I understand now, and has has done a variety of different things. But was involved back in two thousand six, two thousand and seven, in the development of a drag bike uh, called the Killer Cycle, which really changed the globe's perceptions about what electric bikes were capable of, of, of doing. It was built by a, a team of enthusiasts and entrepreneurs, and Eva was their crew chief and PR chief. And uh, she's an
3: engineer. She's uh, a mechanical engineer,
1: yes. Yeah.
0: She is, she is. And she worked with her dad to build her own electric bike, a converted petrol bike. Um, but what was really interesting was that in 2007, the, the killer cycle drag bike, believe it or not, was packed with effectively cordless drill batteries. Um, there was a company called A123 who, who um, really led the world in, in high-density, high-power lithium batteries um, back around that time. And the Killer cycle guys effectively pulled drill batteries apart and jammed them in a drag bike and built a mind-bogglingly fast bike. Uh, 434
2: kilometers an hour is, is her record at the moment, and she's building a better one.
0: That's right, that's right. Um, but what was really fascinating was the, in, in, a, in a press uh, uh, stunt at an exhibition. They were um, they did a burnout on Killer Cycle uh, and crashed it. Uh, and what was really interesting was, although no one was hurt, no nothing mysteriously damaged. It was a bit of a PR disaster. However, the explosive energy that that bike delivered and the ferociousness of it that led to the crash. Uh, and to quote uh, to quote Duhay, he said, "The general public." Finally understood that electric vehicles are no longer just like golf carts. It's a turning <laughs> turning point in the history for EVs because people stood up and took notice and went, "Oh my goodness, that's terrifyingly powerful!" Just like we've seen all the videos of, of Tesla uh, people uh, or people in Teslas experience a Tesla first time and their mind is blown.
1: Yeah, that's moment. so wonderful. We've just got less than thirty seconds left. Left. So you mentioned before about monitoring and control uh, mm. that Solar Analytics provides. Can you just tell us quickly, um, can this be used with electric vehicles?
0: It can. One of the most exciting things we are going to launch this year is a remote control system to allow us to enable uh, high-power outlets for EV charging. It's going to be a low-cost item that allows you to monitor and control, and um, it's one of the many exciting things that we're going to get on the
2: market this year. Okay, and I believe the new Nissan LEAF actually allows you to feed it back into the house. Nigel, this should have been an hour program. Thank you so much for your time. Um, we've really enjoyed it. And where can people find out more about solar Energy? Because I assume just a website of that name, is it? That's correct. Okay, thank you, Nigel. Thank you. So just a reminder, the Melbourne Electric Vehicle Expo is this Sunday at the Melbourne International Carding Complex on Todd Road in Port Melbourne. And there you can see and hear Eva Huckinson, the world's fastest motorcycle rider, talk about building and racing her own electric motorbikes. She's an amazing woman. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by Climate Change Solutions think tank, Beyond Zero Emissions, and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the community radio network. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others that we've done, then you can go to the bze.org.au and click on podcasts. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover our airtime costs and keep us on the air, please go to BZE website and click on the Donate button. I look forward to joining you, you joining us next week. Thank you.
3: Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. Bze.org.au